0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Would you turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 down through verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11. We're in a little mini-series here, and I'll be doing that throughout the book study. When your walk matches your talk. We got into that in verse 12. Of chapter 1 and this is part 3 today's message is is specifically called church discipline and God's forgiveness church discipline and God's forgiveness now to get you into that living grace I I got a kick out of Ryan a while ago and he said you've heard me say this one or two times but living grace is my term that's what it all it is for Christ living in and through a believer Now, that's nothing more than the gospel message. I'm so saddened that we live in a day that you even have to explain it. Because this is what the Bible teaches. Christ said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He is that life, and He lives in us. Now, Christ in us, when He's allowed to live through us, purifies our hearts. And what happens is He radiates sincere motives in all that we do. You see, in short, Christ gives us, He is the evidence that convicts us as guilty of being a believer. That's who He is. Now the evidence is unmistakable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 13 through chapter 2 in verse 5, we saw that evidence that was manifested in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, in fact, we looked at it in areas where most people would not commonly look. It, it's, it, it's marvelous when you see this surface and to see what this evidence is. For instance, we saw in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1 that Paul kept on keeping on even when he was unappreciated. Christ in Paul kept him keeping on. There will always be people who call themselves believers who do not appreciate us nor Do they appreciate the message that we want to share? But Christ in us keeps us keeping on. That's evidence that he lives there. That's evidence that we're believers. But also we saw in verse 15 through 18 that when we are intentionally misrepresented by those who never seem to give us the benefit of the doubt, that's okay. We keep on keeping on. Now, Paul had promised the Corinthians that he was coming to see them. On his way to Macedonia, he was going to stop there And then after he did his business in Macedonia, he was going to come back, stay some some time with them, perhaps even stay the whole winter with them. But he didn't. Now, we know from Scripture he had a good reason, but he didn't. Instead of going to them, he wrote a letter to them as a church to deal with church discipline, with an individual who had caused Paul all kinds of problems and had stirred up doubt even towards his apostleship. Now, because he didn't follow through, uh, no matter his reasons, he didn't follow through and come to see them either time. He didn't go. Uh, People that hated Paul used this as if it was a flaw in his character, and they chose to intentionally misrepresent him by saying that he was not a man of his word. They didn't care if he had a good reason not to come. They were looking for anything, uh, something, anything that that would help demean the individual that could tear him down. They even used this fact, this is so sad, the fact that he said he was coming and he didn't come, they even used that to say, well, you can't trust his word, so surely you can't trust his message. Tear the man down, tear, tear the message down, and that's just nothing new under the sun. But Christ in Paul kept him keeping on. That was evidence that he was proven to be guilty of being a believer. In verses 19 through 24, it shows us that he knew that Christ in him would validate his life no matter what people had to say about him. In fact, he, Paul showed that as Christ was true to his word, Paul was true to his. And what he meant by that was that since Christ is faithful and Christ lived in Paul, then they could trust what Paul said because it was under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that Paul kept on keeping on even when he had to say the hard things. And he knew in his heart that when he wrote this letter that the guilty would hear it, but so would the innocent. And he knew that. And he didn't even want to bring sorrow to any of them. But he had to say the hard things. The reason Paul hadn't come to them was because Timothy had come to Paul and said, Paul, you don't want to, want to know what I'm about to tell you. You don't want to know how the church is acting in Corinth. How the people have stirred up others. This one individual has stirred up others, and they've caused doubt, and, and they're beginning to accuse you falsely. But the problem was really not even that. The problem was that the, the people that were innocent and the people that were right and knew the problem would not stand up for the Apostle Paul. And so it had become a real mess. You know, they had Matthew 18. They had the Gospels at that time. And Matthew 18 clearly states the one another commands of what we do when we see a brother who's intentionally sinning and causing uh, disruption in the body of Christ. If any one of those individual believers would have gone to him and followed the plan already given to them, they could have solved this whole situation. I remember when I was in Chattanooga we we had elders took us seven years to get those elders and when we first got them a lot of people felt like now we have elders we can dump everything on them because they'll do the dirty work that's what they're there for isn't it and we had to convince them that we were not the Gestapo of the church that we were there to represent God and to shepherd and equip the people but we were not there to do what the one another commands commanded the body to do And so we had to stop and preach on the one another commands, over a hundred of them, of what we're to do when we see a brother in sin. Well, long story short, this became a church-wide issue in Corinth. It should not have been that. Paul should not have ever had to write that third letter. If they would have handled it the way biblically they were supposed to have handled it, it wouldn't be the problem that it was. Well, Paul chose to write them instead of going to them. And he said, I do this to spare you of much sorrow. To put it in my terminology, Tennessee language, uh, it would have been a hot time in the old town tonight if he'd have gone there, I tell you. But he was hot. And he had a message, and he said, I don't want to cause you any more sorrow than is necessary. So I think that writing the letter would have been the softer approach. Paul had been tested and shown himself to be guilty as being a believer. Now they get this letter. Now they are going to be tested. Are you going to do what God says for you to do? And guess what? It worked. Praise the Lord. The church finally brought the man that was causing all this problem with Paul, spreading all the lies and deceit about him. They brought him forth, and they disciplined him. And their obedient response to Paul's third letter, which we do not have is what we have in our Bible called Second Corinthians. Paul responds by writing this letter. It's really his fourth letter to them because there's two letters, one mentioned in First Corinthians and one that we've just seen here mentioned that we don't have. They've been lost. So there's four times he's written them. Now today what we're going to see is, yes, they have disciplined the man, but what we're going to see today is how to do it Right? <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. We're all, I can just sort of laugh at this because we're all this way. We either underdo it or we overdo it. And Paul is going to have to say, okay, yes, you've dealt with him, but there's some things you need to do now to make it right. We're going to see that church discipline, when it's done right, always involves the forgiveness of Christ and always has as its purpose to restore the individual back into usefulness. If it doesn't involve God's forgiveness, then what it does, it can go too far. And what it ends up doing is destroying the sinful individual. All of us have sinned. Thank God that we haven't done what some other people have done. And when we deal with them, we have to deal with that approach and understand, but by the grace of God, we're next. But when it's overdone, it can overwhelm the individual and destroy him. Christ in us will not allow us to Cast a sinful believer aside. His love in us will not do that. Christ wants us to forgive him, and Christ wants us to restore him. Forgiveness is evidence that we truly are believers, that we are who we say we are. Christ and Christ alone can enable us to forgive when we have been treated wrongly by others. Never think of church discipline, that you don't think of forgiveness and restoration, but never think of forgiveness and restoration unless you think about Christ. If you're trying to forgive somebody, Ephesians chapter 4 says that you're for to give one another as Christ has forgiven us. No possible way. You have to go back to chapter 3 and understand that Christ has to enable that forgiveness. You cannot forgive another person even though we're commanded to. But anything we're commanded to do, Christ lives in us to enable us in the process. So when you think of forgiveness, you have to look to him. He is the only one in you that can forgive someone who's treated you in a bad way. Well, today we're going to look at God's discipline and how it's to be laced with Christ's forgiveness. It's never right unless the two have been put together. Four things I want you to see. And you know, this is a part of studying scripture. You don't ignore the hard part. You just deal with it as it comes. We do verse by verse. This is what's next. That's where we're going. And it'll balance us by the time we finish this book. First of all, God's discipline involves confrontation and consequence. You don't ignore that. It involves confrontation and it involves consequence. Verse 6. Sufficient for such a one, speaking of this man who's been disciplined, is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Now that word punishment there is the word epitomia. It's only used right here in the New Testament. It refers to the actual penalty that was inflicted upon the guilty one. Now involved in that is a confrontation. He had to be rebuked. He had to be confronted with what he had done and he had to come to that point of acknowledgement then there was a consequence all of that's involved in this one word there's a confrontation and there is a consequence it could be translated censure and it has to do with with whatever consequence was assigned you know we used to have a sign in front of our church when i pastored in chattanooga that said you're free to make any choice you want but you're not free to choose its consequence and the point of that sign was Consequences are always going to be there to wrong choices. Even to right choices, there are consequences. Well, it implies the rebuke of the wrong done. Evidently, the church called the guilty one on the carpet and confronted him with what he had done. The consequence of what he had done possibly was that they dismissed him from the fellowship. We just don't know what those consequences were. Sufficient, he says in verse 6, for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. The word majority refers to the fact that there was a solid number of believers who knew what to do before but wouldn't do it, but had finally come to the point that they were willing to obey God and do what was needed to be done. He goes on, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. The word sufficient is the word hekani. It's the word that means, that's enough. That's enough. Stop. Stop. Don't go any further. That's the idea. Paul had to be proud of the Corinthian believers because they followed through. They finally did what God had told them to do. And he was the apostle through whom God was speaking and writing the New Testament. Whatever they did worked because it caused the, in, the errant believer to grieve over his actions. In verse 7, it says that uh, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The last part of verse 7. And that word sorrow there is the word to leave peace. It's a word which refers to grief. It refers to a person being seriously troubled over a wrong that he has committed. So it worked. But from what Paul is saying in this verse right here, They were a little too gung-ho in disciplining this individual. Paul is telling them that they have done well, but they have gone far enough. Isn't it interesting how we are? We either don't do it or we overdo it. Have you ever noticed that? It's either people not obeying God or when they do, they take it to the extreme. So often we have people that will take up an offense for a brother. And they'll overdo the whole process. They'll kill the individual who's done it simply out of their own uh, flesh. Christ's love working in us towards those who treat us wrongly always involves confrontation and always involves consequence. But Christ's love in us is what keeps us from going too far. You see, Christ gives us a discernment about how much discipline is enough. And enough is enough. Paul, but God's discipline, laced with Christ's forgiveness, will never deny confrontation, nor will it erase consequence. So we see then immediately, you don't, forgiveness is not just doing away with it. Oh, no. There's an acknowledgment. There's a confrontation. There is consequences to it. But enough, like I said, is Enough. That's why it says in Romans 12, not for us to ever, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The word vengeance is not vengeance, it's the o o. It means, out of righteousness I judge. Only God knows how much enough is enough. Only God knows that. Men do not know that. Men will go out of their feelings, out of their hurt, and they'll either overdo or they'll underdo. But it, it, God's forgiveness and church discipline never denies confrontation, nor does it erase consequences. Well, the second thing I want you to see here is that God's discipline goes beyond what is humanly expected. Rebuking a sinful brother, assigning consequences is one thing, but there's so much more. If that's all it is, has nothing to do with God. Here's what God's forgiveness is all about. This is where it's clearly seen. is when you are dealing with a brother that has wronged somebody, that has sinned. The, the way you go about it says everything. About whether Christ is doing it in verse 7 so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow now instead of afflicting more grief on the errant brother I mean my goodness how far are you going to take him he says on the contrary in other words radically different he says forgive and comfort him now, that word forgive may surprise you this morning. It's the word, it's a beautiful word. It's the word charisome. It means to do a favor for somebody who in no way deserves it. It comes from the word charis, which is the word for grace. Here it means to show him what he does not deserve. Now, this is where the Christ in us really reaches out and touches the people that are in, in pain from because of their own sin. This is, this is where we understand that we're believers when our heart has been tenderized it'll reach out and be sensitive to other people now, you know the Apostle Paul was a champion of this even though the Holy Spirit leading him but in his letters he wrote many things about this he talks about the weaker brother and he he does all these other things to, to champion this idea but in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 he says something so almost exactly what he's saying here he says brethren even if anyone is caught in any trespass. And there's a double meaning to that word caught. You see, before I became a believer, I chased after sin. I know you didn't. But we all chased after sin. (laughs) I'll go ahead and say it. But after I became a believer and you became a believer, sin chases after us. And I want to tell you, folks, sometimes it catches us. Let me just ask you a question, see if you'd be willing to be honest this morning. I'm going to raise my hand. Did sin catch anybody in here besides me this past week? Well, how about that? We're all in the same boat, aren't we? But what it means here in a double meaning, not only did sin catch the brother, but somebody caught the brother being caught. That's the bad part. Now, if you could just be caught by sin and nobody know about it, that's awesome. But that's not what he's referring to here. Somebody caught him. In any trespass and he opens the door to anything he says you who are spiritual if you study Galatians he tells you how to be spiritual he's not talking about the elders he's talking about people that are willing to walk filled with the Spirit of God and Galatians 5 and 23 the fruit of his spirit is born in their life you who are spiritual you who are filled with God's love you who are letting Jesus be Jesus in your life restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Restore. Restore. That's what the whole thing's all about. Yes, you have a brother that has sinned. Yes, the people are devastated. Yes, it's hurt the the, the apostle Paul here in the situation. But the key is, yes, you confront him. He acknowledges. There are consequences to it. But it doesn't stop there. You put your arms around him and say, listen, brother, I know I I could have been there myself. Let me come alongside you. Let me help you. Let me get you back on your feet. The word restore in Galatians 6.1 is the word that means to heal or to mend a broken bone. Let me ask you a question. Is it painful when you set a broken bone? Absolutely. Does it take some pain involved? Yeah, the confrontation, the consequences are painful. And it's in the present tense, which means it's a process, man. You don't do it one day in one hour. You come along beside this guy, and you stay with that individual until he can get his feet back on the ground. The favor. You say, Wayne, he doesn't deserve it. That's exactly right. And I stand before God every day, and I don't deserve a thing he does in my life, nor do you. And it's that attitude that consumes us and reflects itself out to the people that we're dealing with. The favor that is to be shown to the sinful believer who has been confronted and possibly removed from membership is now that they come alongside him and help him and restore him. He says, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Paul adds the word comfort. That word comfort ought to grab everybody's attention if you've been with us in 2 Corinthians because we have seen it over and over and over again in chapter 1. Same word. As Paul was mistreated and God comforted him so that he could turn around and comfort the church of Corinth, now they can turn around and comfort this errant brother that's in the fellowship. It involves coming alongside to instruct and to give guidance. It's the word "paracallo." It's a form of the word we've been looking at, to be called alongside, to come alongside the individual. Once a believer has sinned and now has been confronted, he's involved in the consequences of his sin. And by the way, God's mercy is what helps us bear up under the consequences of sin. He says now the believers come alongside him. Come alongside him. Get him back. Prop him up. Get him back on his feet. Help him to be usable. Again, this is God's love and his forgiveness at work through those who allow, them, who allow Christ to be Lord in their lives. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Why? Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You see, if we don't forgive and comfort the sinful believer, if all we're going to do is confront him on his sin and give the consequences to his sin, and we're going to walk away as if that the job is done, what we'll do, we'll overwhelm him with what he calls excessive sorrow. The word overwhelmed is the word that means to swallow something up in one gulp. I've never sipped anything in my life. If any of y'all, I gulp everything. I was in Romania, and they had a Lord's Supper. And I didn't know it was going to be wine. I've never drank wine in my life. Never needed it. I was born this way. And they had it in a glass, not in a little bitty cup. They had it in a glass, and it was full almost. And I've never, like I said, I've never sipped anything, never tasted wine. And I took that sucker and gulped it. Son, we need to hit my whatever hit down in here. That burned worse than the green chilies we have over here. And I was going, they say, will you pray? And I said, <laughs> I swallowed that stuff up in one gulp. That's what the word means. To be overwhelmed, to be swallowed up by something, to be consumed in an instant by something. And what is it that swallowed it up? It was excessive sorrow. The word excessive is the word parisi. It's the word that means over and above, more than enough. The word sorrow is the word we saw a while ago, peace. It means grief and trouble. I mean when a person is sinned, it's bad enough the guilt that already is on him if he's a believer it's bad enough when he has to be publicly exonerated for that I mean to, to be publicly accused of that sin it's bad enough when he has to deal with the consequences but man when you walk away from him and you don't show him the grace and the mercy of God you have swallowed him up in grief and trouble and I wonder how many people today will not come to church because they messed up and the church messed up in the way they dealt with them and kicked them out and today they're out there somewhere overwhelmed by excessive sorrow because they've been looking for the mercy of Jesus and they haven't seen it anywhere in anybody that they know it's rampant You wonder sometimes why people have a bad taste in their mouth about churches. I'll tell you why. They look at us and they don't see Jesus. They see us, oh, yeah, we can be right about something, but we can also be right and be wrong in the way we deal with it. When the love is not there, the forgiveness is not there, somebody is swallowed up by excessive sorrow, by some Pharisee, by some bigot. Who doesn't understand it's only by grace he breathes his only breath, is his breath he wakes up in the morning that nails that individual and has no love or compassion whatsoever to see them put back on their feet. When a believer is allowing Christ to live through him, then Christ enables him and initiates that forgiveness. This is seen once when once a sinful believer has been rebuked. It is seen in the way in which he's treated once he's been confronted, once the consequences have been assigned, that's where it's seen. What this does is to encourage him that he's still loved. No matter what he's done, no matter how much he has to pay for, no matter what the consequences are, he's still loved and he can still be useful in the body of Christ. Verse 8 says, Wherefore I urge you... To re- reaffirm your love for him. The word reaffirm, kiro. It's the word that means to establish something is valid. To confirm it. Do you really love him? Then prove it to him. Go to him. Come alongside him. Help him to get his feet back. Hey, maybe he's a deacon and he's committed adultery and now he can't be a deacon anymore. That's all right. He can be used someplace else. Take him and help him understand. Yes, the consequences will be there. God's mercy will help him bear up under it. But my goodness, don't just kick him out. Help him understand. Help him get his feet back on the ground. God's discipline laced with Christ's forgiveness rebukes and doesn't negate consequences. To the action, not at all, but it also does a favor that is not deserved by coming alongside and instructing one in how to be useful again. Now I want to put this in parental form, okay? Because sometimes we miss it when it comes to a church. Let's put it. Let's put it in a family context. Same thing. The way God disciplines me every day in my life involves all of these things we're talking about. The way the church disciplines its members the way an individual holds another accountable, but the way we raise our children also fits this. If you ever have a child and, and, and that child errs, he disobeys, sins, <laughs> and all you do is punish it, then, friend, you have missed it. And I'll tell you what, you can count on one thing. That person, when he gets old enough to get away from the home, he'll never come back. There's a rebellion that builds up inside of him and a resentment that's incredible. But if you'll let Jesus be Jesus in you, my mama used to say, Wayne, you go get your own switch. And I'd find the smallest thing I could find, man. My mother would go out and cut the tree down and beat me with it. I mean, it, it was fine. But you know what the thing I remember most about my mama? Is after she had spanked me the consequences were there the tears were there the remorse was there she sat on the steps and we had wooden steps going upstairs in a little cracker box house and she had put her arm around me and just cry with me and says oh Wayne Allen Wayne Allen I love you but son you can't keep doing this and she would help me understand that I could do better she would help me understand that I could be productive in the family not get beaten all the time till I was 17 years old I'd have been seven feet tall if if I'd have behaved myself growing up. That's what what it is. If you're not instructing that child, if you're not loving that child, once it's been confronted, once the consequences have been assigned, you've missed the whole point. Because God doesn't treat you that way. How in the world would you treat your child that way? It's the same thing in the church. You don't kick them out. You don't kick them out. You come alongside them and seek to restore them. You may take their name off the fellowship. Hey, so what? Matthew 18 says treat them as an unbeliever if they refuse to repent. But you don't give up on them. You just keep coming back, trying to restore, to get their feet back on the ground. Thirdly, God's discipline is a test of our obedience. This is a real interesting thing. You remember those teachers that used to say, take all the books off the desk, take out a clean sheet of paper. Those teachers that will not be in heaven... (laughs) Well, what he says here is, he says to this church, he said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to test your obedience right here. Take off all the books of your desk. Take out a clean sheet of paper. You see, Christianity is not a cafeteria line. We don't take what we like and then then reject what we don't like. You have to take it all. You buy into every bit of it. When you become a believer, you're a brand new creature, and every word of God becomes important to you. In verse 9, he says, for to this end, also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, you might be obedient in a few things, but are you obedient in all things? The word test is the word dokimis. comes from the word dokimos I know, thank you, Wayne. It means to be proven. It means to be proven genuine, to be proven to be true to what you say you really are. You want to call yourself a Christian? Let's just see. Paul says, I'm going to see. Even though church discipline is not a comfortable subject, uh, the fact that a, ch- that, a, that a church is willing to discipline a sinful believer. By the way, if you enjoy confrontation in church discipline in, in, in the raw form, not in Christ form, you're sick. That's all i got to say. It's, it's not a comfortable subject. Nobody wants to talk about it. Oh, good night, Wayne. I came this morning to feel better. Well, I can't help it. This is what we have to deal with. Once the fact that a, a person is disciplined, confronted, there's consequences, and a person's willing to stick with them, and the individual to feel God's burden to help that individual get back on his feet, that proves that the people are what they say they are and that they're obedient in all things. This is not one of those things that's optional. This is not one of those things you just push aside. It's part of it. In fact, it sets a standard among the people and sends a signal that we are people that are set apart. We don't act like the world acts. That's what it sends us to say. Not the fact that we discipline, but the fact that we seek restoration and show forgiveness. When I was at Woodland Park, we had the first person to come before church discipline. 18 years I was there. Only four, maybe five in all those 18 years got to the final step. There are four steps in Matthew 18, very clearly outlined, by the way, in your bylaws and constitution. And each one of those steps, you don't get to the church. It doesn't come to the elders until the very last thing. And when we were there, we finally had a guy that he would not repent. And that's what, that's what you bring before the church. Not his sin, but the fact that he's unwilling to repent. He's unwilling to acknowledge. And so, therefore, we finally had to bring it before the church. Nobody knew who it was because love covers. It builds a, a roof over. You don't tell everybody what you're doing until it's time to do it. And I made the announcement one Sunday morning. <laughs> we had about 100 and some kids set over to my right. I wish they were in our services. I really do. Stephen is trying his best. You help me with that, would you? It's a parent problem. It's not a kid's problem. If we could get the parents to get them in here, we could have a wonderful opportunity to minister to them. But right now they go other places until they come here for one hour. But I had them sitting over to my right, and I made the statement. I said, we're going to have church discipline, and an individual is going to be removed from our role. On the next night, we have the Lord's Supper. <laughs> my son, Stephen, was sitting in amongst the group, and he said, Dad, you wouldn't believe what happened. He said, he, he said, it's humorous. He said, every one of those kids turned around and said, oh, my gosh, they found out. Oh, no, they know what I did. They all thought it was them. <laughs> I don't know what had gone on that Friday night, but whatever it was, it wasn't good. And they were sweating. Man, they were sweating. They thought, man, the whole church is going to know about it. And the whole thing's going to happen. It wasn't any of them. But you know what it did do? It sort of raised a standard. Hey, we're not here to play games and make people feel good. We're here to be equipped to be the believers God's told us to be. And it sent that signal very clearly. You don't live like you want to live and then walk around telling people you're a believer, bringing reflection upon the church and upon Christ. Had a man come to me after that first time, and he said, Brother Wayne, if a church had been obedient enough to do this years ago years ago he said I don't know what church he's talking about he said to me he said Wayne I would still be married to the only woman I've ever loved because I had committed such heinous sin he said they treated me in such a way that I felt like there was never any hope for my life and he said I lost the, the love of my life because of stupidity in my my walk but nobody would nobody would deal with it and I was I, I fell in the cracks None of us, like I said, like confrontation unless we're sick. But it's a part of it. I don't like it. I'll go ten blocks out of the way. Jim can tell you that. Anybody can tell you that. I'd rather I'm a peacemaker. I'd rather put my arm around somebody and encourage them than I would confront them. But that's part of it. But i tell you where the part I like about it is after they're confronted, I want to put my arm back around them now. Let's help them out. Let's get them back on their feet. They're usable to God. Let, God, let to be a vessel for Him. Well, the test is not in the confrontation. No, sir. There's some, there's some very fleshly-minded people enjoy that. It's in the fact that we're willing after the confrontation to now come alongside and to walk with an individual and to see that they're restored in the body of Christ. Their feet is back on the ground. Verse 9 again, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient and all the things. I want to see if you're genuine. I want to see if you say you're a Christian, you really are what you say you are. That's why he wrote to them. His letter to them, which demanded that they deal with the sinful brother who had lied and spread disrespect, was a test. And they passed it. They passed that test. Now, the next part of it is if they're willing to forgive and to restore let me ask you something. Now, I'm going to apply this this morning. I don't know anything. Every time I say this, somebody thinks I'm, I'm referring to something. No, I'm not. For God, I'm not. If a shoe fits, I guess we'll just have to wear it. Let me ask you a question. Who is it in this body right now that you're aware of, you are aware of, that is in sin? You know it. Not from hearsay, but you know it. And you know that since you're aware of it, The Bible says don't take it to the elders. You go to them and make sure you've got yourself in line with the Spirit of God and that he's filled your life because you have to go in a spiritual condition. You know that because if you go to the elders, that's gossip. But you, as a brother or sister in Christ, you're aware of somebody right now. See, what I'm trying to say is this problem could have been handled in Corinth, but it wasn't. It had to become a church-wide thing because the believers would not do what they knew to do. Is there enough evidence in this body right here, right now, to convict us as guilty in all matters that we're going to obey in every area? Is there enough evidence here to where we could actually go to our brother and expect our brother to come to us if we're in sin and we go in love, we go humble, and we go willing to put our arm around him to take that individual and help him get back on his feet and be restored in the body of Christ. God's discipline does not deny confrontation nor erase consequence. It goes beyond human expectation. It forgives and it comforts, and it's a test of our obedience. But there's one more thing I want you to see today. God's discipline protects us from Satan's schemes. You want to be protected from the schemes of the devil? When Christ in us leads us to discipline uh, an errant beloved brother and to show forgiveness and, and, and comfort him by coming alongside him to see him restored, that's a protection against the schemes of the devil. Verse ten, eleven. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, once bitterness takes root in a believer's life, it's going to spread like cancer. If you've been wounded by another believer, and for whatever reason, and that's deep inside of you, and there's not been a short-term account, there's not been somebody to go to him, and there's not been any of that done, then bitterness begins to set in. It's like the acid in your stomach you want to spew on somebody else is going to eat you alive before you get the chance. That's what bitterness is. A lot of bitter people in the body of Christ. Paul had been offended. But Paul wants the Corinthians to know, I forgave this man, and I did it in the presence of Christ, and I did it for your sakes, because now that I've forgiven him, I'm the one who took the brunt of the offense. Now, you turn loose, and you forgive this individual. They stood at the door of having to forgive him and go the second mile. Now, if they did it, there would be no advantage that Satan could have in the body of Christ. You see, bitterness, unforgiveness, lack of God's love, taking up an offense for a brother is one of the schemes that is empowered by the enemy of our souls. When people are divided for whatever reason and they're not willing to to confront, they're not willing to sit down, they're not willing to deal with the problem, what happens is that division begins to start, and that's the way the devil, it does. The word schemes is a simple word. It means to a well-thought-out, it, it refers to a well-thought-out plan. It's well-thought-out, folks. It doesn't have to be the devil with horns and a tail walking around this building. No, no. He doesn't even have to be here. You get a believer who will not be obedient in all things, will not deal with, with the sin that's in his heart or, or the offense, offense that's come to him, he, you already played into his hands anyway. And it's like you become a part. You fall into that trap of one of his schemes. Why are churches so divided? Have you ever noticed how churches are in Albuquerque? (laughs) Oh, Wayne. I'd rather kind of laugh than I would cry. Well, Brother Wayne, I love your preaching. I just hate your music. I'm going to go down here, and I'm going to go to church over here. And you get over there, and they've got a brand-new music guy. And you say, oh, good grief, they've gone the same way. And, and after 55 churches, where are you going to land? Or Brother Wayne, that's sort of a tender subject. Isn't it? <laughs> Get off that one. It's like musical churches around here. I wonder how many people we've sent to Calvary. I wonder how many people we've sent to Sandia. I wonder how many people they've sent to us. I just wonder what's going on. You see, what happens is when people are not willing to deal with something biblically and in love with God's forgiveness, what happens is they fall right in the trap of the devil. And the word for devil, not Satan, but the word for devil is the word, the one who divides. it's, It's a... Uh, it comes in between. via volos. Thea means between, and volos means to cast. To cast in between and divide God's people, and it's a scheme. He's the adversary of our souls. We take offense for a brother who has been wronged. instead of dealing with it biblically. Matthew eighteen. Instead of going of Galatians chapter six verse one. Instead of following what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter or Second Corinthians chapter two. We just bail and go someplace else. I'm tired of the whole thing. And we're not obedient in all things the word Satan means adversary so what have we learned well if there's going to be evidence in our lives that we're believers part of that evidence is our willingness to go to a brother and confront him on a sin and if there's consequences help him to understand the mercy of God that helps him bear up under it but we come alongside him now okay you've seen all right let's get past that now, let's get you back on your feet, and, and let's help you understand how not to do that again. And let's walk, get, get you to a point that God can use you again. That's evidence. That's real evidence. God's discipline does not deny confrontation or consequence. It goes beyond human expectation. It's a test. And it's a protection from Satan's schemes. I want to tell you something. You and I are not proven by what we say. Oh, that can be fine. It's how we go about what we say. It's the way we treat people, not what we say to them. That's, 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 talk is cheap. It's the way we deal with them. Is it in God's love and God's forgiveness and God's mercy, understanding by the grace of God, we would be there ourselves. One of the sweetest things that ever happened to me when I was pastoring, we had a—he's a, <laughs> a little man— uh, we wanted to give him a swastika. He worked in our parking lot. He would, he'd want to shoot people parked in a handicapped zone. I mean, it's amazing. He was he was real good at rules. You know what I mean? Real good at rules. <laughs> he knew the letter, but he didn't know the spirit of the law. <laughs> and it was amazing. He nailed Dinah one time because she came in late I, and uh, parked in a handicap zone. And he just absolutely ate her lunch. And I'm just... Well, one day I get this word that he's left his wife and gone out with another woman. Well, the first thing I did was wrong. I apologize. I asked God to forgive me. I laughed because I couldn't think of any woman that wouldn't want to go with him. (laughs) Come to find out he had moved out, buddy. He had moved to another place and had it was shacking up and everything else. And it was right. And I'm thinking, oh, Man. And the thing finally got to us as elders, and we had to deal with it. Now, we loved this guy. We just thought, what happened to him? I mean, something, a chip popped out of his brain or something. And everybody went to him. He said, "Uh uh-uh, buddy, I'm in the right. So we finally, the, the third step of church discipline is to write a registered letter to make them sign for it when they get it. And in that letter, beg them to go on and repent of this thing so we don't have to take it any further. Well, when he got that letter, whatever happened, I don't know how God used it, but it, well, I know the result. It just stunned him and brought him to his senses. It's incredible. And about two weeks after that letter had been sent out, I hadn't heard what had happened, and I was standing on the rostrum up here. We were having welcome to the guests, and everybody was shaking hands like we do here. And he walked up on the platform. And I'm thinking, okay. And he said, "Wayne, can I say something to the church? I've learned something by that. Always check out to see what it is they want to say." I've learned a long time ago and I said what is it you want to say and he began to sob he said I'm not a speaker and I'm not he said but he said my sin has not only hurt my wife and I've gone to her and asked her to forgive me but my sin has hurt my friends and has gotten into the church and I feel like I need to stand before the church and ask them to forgive me and I said whoa I think I can handle that one so everybody came back together and I had him sit down and my precious brother came out I just put my arm around him because I knew he was so nervous and he just stuttered and just just couldn't hardly get it out and weeping. And he said, I just want to ask all of my friends out there, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for what I've done. I've even brought shame on you. Man, the church broke into an applause. I could have hugged every one of them, kissed them on the mouth. It was awesome. They began to applaud. And his little dear wife was sitting right down here, just tears streaming down her face. And I told her to come down. And I said, all oh, you ladies, she didn't do anything. She's got a long road here on learning how to forgive and that trust bond being built. I want you to come down here and get around her and just pray. And I want you just to bring a scripture with you to encourage her heart. And I told my brother, I said, you stand right down here. And I said, come on, guys, get out of your seat. Come on down here and love our brother. We're going to love him back into the fellowship. We're going to see this marriage put back together. We're going to see their feet back on the ground. They came down. All the choir started singing. I'll never forget it. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood Of Jesus. Have you ever heard that? Oh the blood of Jesus. Now listen. That washes white as snow. Do you know what that was? That was one of the sweetest moments I've ever had in a church since I've been in the ministry. Nobody's standing there looking, pointing and pointing and judging and criticizing and condemning. Everybody coming together, loving one another, and restoring an errant brother. That day, the test was passed. They're willing to be obedient in all things. How are we doing today? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.